welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Welcome to episode 166 of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Tate Smith, who is an award-winning trans activist, consultant, campaigner, and speaker. And Tate started to experience anxiety at high school, but this had nothing to do with his gender and more to do with his upbringing. It was only later on in his teenage years that he became aware of what it means to be trans and was able to start making sense of himself. And in this episode, I chat to Tate about anxiety, about how it started and how it affects his life day to day. And I also chat to Tate about coming out as trans, how that was received by his family and in his workplace, and the last few years that he spent working towards becoming his true self. We talk about things like stigma and hate and misunderstanding, and we balance that out by talking about things like joy and freedom and authenticity. And it's a fascinating conversation. I absolutely love chatting to Tate. He's a really lovely guy. We got on really well. And there's a few things in this episode that I think are particularly important. Don't get me wrong, all of it's good, all of it's important, but there's a few things that really stood out to me where I really felt like I learned something so it was really interesting to talk about Tate's experiences with anxiety separate to his experiences with gender dysphoria I think it's a really common misconception that if a trans person experiences problems with their mental health then it must be all to do with gender and everything that's going on there and that's obviously not the case so it felt really important and really relevant to kind of dig into that a little bit with Tate and explore it a lot of Tate's consultancy work centers around the workplace and coming out while working for an organisation, you know, how the organisation can support trans people better and how other people in these companies and businesses can understand what's going on. And that also felt like something really worthwhile to explore. So much of the trans experience, you know, we focus on on the coming out and on the decision and we don't necessarily think much about all the other aspects of normal everyday life that a trans person has to try and navigate and a huge part of that is work and work environment so again yeah it was fascinating to explore the day-to-day reality of, of being a trans person and the other thing that I really wanted to highlight which really gave me a lot to think about is Tate's perspective on men's mental health in general as someone who has lived as both a female and a male so Tate's in a really unique position where he's seen both sides of this conversation. And that was really interesting, just to get his perspective on that and kind of explore some of his ideas around that as well. So yeah, it's a big episode. There's a lot there. There's a lot to chew on. We really cover some some big topics and some big ideas. And I can't thank Tate enough for his openness and his honesty. It was just great to chat and to debunk some of these myths and look at things from different perspectives. You know, I do believe that that is how we how we make the world go round, how we change the world, right? It's to try and see things through the perspective of others and to learn from each other. And I really felt like both Tate and I did that in this episode. If you'd like to know more about him and his work, all in the episode notes, social handles, links to his websites where you can read more about his activism and his consultancy and all that sort of stuff. If you would like to watch this conversation, you can do so now by becoming a proper mentalist, which is the affectionate name that I've given to the people who sign up to join the Patreon community. It's just £3 a month and you get early access to all the episodes. You get the videos to the episodes that aren't available anywhere else and you get to rest easy in the knowledge that you're helping to keep proper mental going and to keep it in 
independent and to keep it advert free. So if that sounds like something you'd like to get on board with, the link is in the episode notes or you can go to patreon.com slash proper mental podcast. Another great way to support the show is to leave a review wherever you're listening to this now. You can probably leave a review for me. It's such a throwaway thing to say on podcast intros. I say it every week but it really does make a difference. So thank you in advance if you're going to go and do that for me now. This is episode 166 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Tate Smith. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. And we are back with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. My guest this week is Tate Smith. How are you, mate? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm really good. It's lovely to see you again. We had a little catch up, didn't we, before like the other yeah. side of Christmas a month or so, so ago. So yeah, it's lovely to say hello again. I feel like I'm talking to a to, talking to an old friend already, mate. Oh, bless you. Yeah, it's nice to see us looking nice and refreshed day after the break. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, yeah. A couple of weeks off, have a rest, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, what I... I thought I'd just jump in really kind of right at the start really today, Tate. Um, and we were kind of chatting a little bit about this before we pressed record. So it works quite well. But um, you're originally from Essex, is that right? Like deepest, orangest, Towie country. Yeah, that, uh... exactly. And from from Loughton, which is where all the Towie lot are based. Yeah, I moved into London um, three years ago. Well, actually four, four now in June. Yeah, so um yeah, long way away from from Essex, but now based in southeast London. Right. Did you see the um, the impact of that show and that type of culture? Like when you were coming up, did you? Was that kind of all around you? Was that quite a big deal to be living there? Yeah, it's it's funny that you asked that because I started secondary school in Brentwood, which is where they're also based and where they had all their shops um, in 2010. So I started secondary school, the show kicked off, it was massive in its first series, I think it won like a BAFTA over Downton Abbey and like caused loads of controversy, but they were like, they were like A-listers, so it was like the thing to go to their shops after school, but it had a real knock-on effect um, on people's appearances. And uh, I guess we'll be touching a lot upon this today with my transness and how that's affected my appearance growing up in puberty, but that really had a knock-on effect for my upbringing and my experience of puberty because, like you say, the orange faces, the Paul's Boutique bags, they were really trendy then. You know, to to be an Essex girl, you had to, like, take on this whole other persona, a whole other look, and I tried my best to sort of blend in from that because I was from, like, a really rural village. I had a poor poor as anything working class upbringing and suddenly I'm in the world of massive four by fours four bedroom houses you know all of these dare I say nepo babies coming into my school and I'm trying to emulate the same sort of look as on this tv show so no it definitely yeah so fascinating you ask because I don't actually have been more vocal about this recently like how that affected my upbringing and I do feel like it probably contributed to me not realising I was trans until 16 because I've tried for so many years during puberty to try and be a, a pretty girl for as long as I could. I didn't allow myself enough space to explore my gender until I got into my late teens. Yeah, I suppose that 
that kind of whole look, that whole vibe really yeah. like doubled down on the stereotype of what quote unquote women should look like and what men should look like. And yeah. it's fasc fascinating that you think like kids are growing up in working class areas. And yeah. then like you say, suddenly like, you know, having, you know, your makeup done and having your tan topped up every other day, yeah. that's expensive stuff. Right. And that, it, it adds so much pressure on young people to try and be a certain thing that isn't yeah. really a thing if you think about it it's just a telly show that's caught fire but it's a right, it's a exactly. tricky one isn't it mm, completely yeah i wanted to have a um a chat about anxiety which is something that you've talked about before that's something that you've experienced like in your in your teens and the reason yeah. i'm kind of starting there is because we're going to talk a lot today about gender and identity and about transitioning and all that sort of stuff mm -hmm. um at which comes with a lot of additional mental health challenges yes. but i also want to talk about trans people experiencing mental health issues that have nothing to do with transitioning right yeah. because i think that yeah. i think it's really easy to assume that you're a trans person so anything to do with your mental health must purely be down to gender but that's not the case at all right so um yeah so i wanted to ask you about your your experiences of anxiety before we talk about your own experiences of transitioning i suppose yeah well thank you for for opening that up because actually my anxiety started when i was around 14 15 I remember it so distinctly. It came on during my GCSEs, but it wasn't as a result of my GCSEs. It was a result of a very, very troubled upbringing. Um, childhood was terrible, which I won't go into. But what happened was the anxiety just hit me during, you know, all the revision, all the exam prep. And then even just being in a class, like I remember being in like my triple science class, which is where they brought like, the whole year together and it was just so overstimulating for me being around people just made me anxious and I had a, my first panic attack walking down the humanities corridor in my school and I, I don't know how but by instinct I managed to stop it you know put my feet firmly on the ground and just move to the side away from the crowds of people and take deep breaths and um, I thought oh my goodness what is this and it got worse and worse, 15, 16. And then unfortunately I developed depression. And then I worked with a counselor at my school who considering it was a school was actually very, very good. So I managed to um, resolve it during that time and actually go on to do quite well in my exams. But then what happened was I went charging forward and just left it didn't keep doing the work, didn't really re revisit stuff. I just wanted to keep charging forward. And then I sort of actually, the beginning of last year, um, this time last year, it was a completely different headspace. I mean, that anxiety came back and hit me like a truck. I mean, it kind of got worse during the pandemic. I mean, it's cliche to sound, but, you know, when you're alone with your thoughts and trapped indoors, it's going to heighten everything. And if you have anxiety, if you have ADHD or whatever, that is going to get more heightened. Um, but yeah, it's nothing, nothing actually to do with my transness. Because like I say, I, I didn't figure out that I was trans until I was 16, because I didn't even know what the word meant. And I didn't know the, about the concept of transitioning. So the anxiety for me was just like all the life experiences that I had growing up to those late teen years um but yeah it's something that I like still grapple with and then sometimes it does mix with the gender dysphoria and what I mean by that is the mismatch between my brain and my body which makes me trans so it's really really easy to catastrophize 
and get in my head. And I do that when I have when I have a dysphoric moment. So there will be, even though I have been transitioning for nearly five years, I look masculine enough. There will be days where I do look in the mirror and I will go, that's what I looked like when I was a girl. I don't look particularly manly today. And then I'll put a suit on and I'll feel like I'm wearing a second skin. And I'll go, oh my God, I feel like a little boy playing dress up in his dad's suit or something. And then I have to go, okay, is this gender dysphoria or is it your anxiety? Are you catastrophizing? So it's a lot of like internal work, but luckily like where I am nearly 25 now, got more years experience, obviously got more experience going through therapy and talking with different people. I've now got the tools to work through that. Um, but yeah, it really wasn't a pleasant time being that anxious. Like, can you imagine 14, 15 junior GCSEs? Like, honestly, it's a wonder that I got through them. But I think it's a real testament to like my brain wiring because I feel like when I face uncertain situations or stressful situations, I don't know what it is, Tom, but like my brain just goes into like, full capacity mode like I just work even harder and I like deliver results quicker and that that the first experience of that happening was you know my exams yeah it's something that comes up a lot on this show and it's something as a society that I don't think we take into account is mm -hmm. stuff that's normalized as like completely normal life events in capitalist yeah. society like doing your GCSEs yeah but if there's already something underlying going on that we might or might not be aware of how it changes the amount of people that I've spoke to that kind of had something going on, but it wasn't a huge thing, wasn't out of control. And then it's something like GCSE, something like going to uni that comes up a lot, but yeah. that's such a normal rite of passage that it's almost like we don't give it enough um, credit for how hard it can be for people doing the exams, going to uni, starting a new job, you know, these it's things great. that are normal, right? But it, it's tough if you've got something else going on underneath the surface. Completely. And you've just made me think, actually, when we're in year six and we do our SATs, I mean, it's so early to be putting that pressure, that exam pressure on a young child and I mean that was me when I was you know nine ten I can only imagine how difficult it is for kids now and then they they drum into you that that's going to then have a knock-on effect on your expected grades when you're going to secondary school which then feed into your predicted grades in year 10 year 11 or at least it did for me and then they take into account um your postcode some schools that was a big thing in Essex actually where they would um it would be like a postcard lottery. So what they would do is they would predict your grades and then they would put what the what the average occupation was in your postcode. Like how right. unfair is that? And wow. then that would count into your expected grade. So me, coming from a working class rural village, living in a council estate, do you reckon I was getting predicted A-stars? No. <laughs> and like my parents both lived on benefits. They worked odd jobs, like you know, the odds were like stacked against me. Like we put far too much pressure on young people. And then, like you say, there's not enough credit given to um, union, things like that. I mean, I, I attempted an evening law degree a couple of years ago and I had to withdraw with one year to go because I just I just couldn't handle the stress. And I thought it's not worth it, really not worth it. Yeah, that's it's hard to... 
when you like when you want to do something or have a go at something it's hard to kind of work out that whole not worth it thing and we have we yeah. have to learn the hard way so often yeah. don't we like we're right. really bad at that as humans like it's only when the shit hits the fan that we go yeah do you know what now i actually think about it there's a lot going on yeah let me take maybe, a step back yeah, yeah maybe, <laughs> maybe have a think yeah. yeah and you you mentioned before tate that um around about that time in your in your teens 15 16 that you didn't really know anything about about transgender and transness when when did that come on your radar when did you first even hear, hear the word trans and i suppose i'll make this a two-part question at that time were you looking for a word that would kind of help you to start to understand yourself yes i the way i remember it is i understood what gay and lesbian was but as slurs I didn't know anybody in the community. I just knew that gay people existed. Then around about 2014, 15, we started getting a lot more media representation. So I was a really big fan of Miley Cyrus growing up and she came out as gender fluid and pansexual in 2015. And I thought, whoa, pansexual, that, that seems to fit me. And I've used that label um, for a number of years I, I don't now because I just think what's the point in labeling my sexuality when I'm so rigid in the label for for my gender identity and then I think I just did a simple google and I followed tumblr blogs and instagram pages and that word ftm female to male transgender came up and then I, I remember it so distinctly. I was in a study break at college. So this was our, summer after I left my GCSEs. I'm tail end of 16, about to turn 17. And I was in a three-hour study break. And I was sitting in like this quiet area with my notebook and just, you know, doom scrolling on YouTube. And I thought, I'm going to search, <laughs> am I trans? <laughs> which is Which is a enough isn't it and then um it was like a buzzfeed quiz or something and obviously it come back yes and then i typed in ftm on youtube and i found this uh canadian guy named benton sorensen i'm getting quite emotional thinking of things actually because i haven't thought about it for a while but yeah this canadian guy named benton sorensen who did a five-year time-lapse video of his transition because it's like a second puberty, so like five to six years. And it just clicked in me. Like I had no no instinct growing up about it. I just knew that I had some sort of discomfort. I didn't really show any obvious signs like, you know, throwing tantrums if my mum put me in a dress. Like I love dressing up as Princess Belle. I loved like playing with little like fairies and brats and Barbies and whatnot. Like I loved Hannah Montana. Like I was, I was a bit tomboyish when I got into my tweens and a bit like rough and tumble. And like, I loved playing as Peter Pan and Doctor Who and James Bond, but mostly I was actually particularly feminine stereotypically, but I took that notebook and I started writing down all the early signs that I had missed, you know, the fixation with Peter Pan, the role playing as James Bond, the wanting to play with boys. Why did I cry when I didn't get the role of the gangster in Bugsy Malone? <laughs> like, things like and then I was like, oh my God, this is the word I've, I've been looking for. And um, 
I mean, it wasn't like, oh, you know, I, I, I found that word and then I never looked back. Like it was really, really hard. The, well, the days, the weeks, the months that follow trying to socially transition, come out to my parents, they wouldn't have it. And then I had to go back into the closet and then medically transition a couple of years later. Wow. It, it goes to show the, the power of having that sort of representation out there and finding that video you know i, I remember yeah. when um i was i was in crisis with my mental health and i found on um a lot of people sort of turn their noses up at these like awareness days and stuff but um and i can see why and i can see why not but um i someone had shared a video and it was like the first time ever i'd heard someone talking about being unwell and it sounded like my experience and i remember a similar sort of thing i just watched that video over and over and over i couldn't believe it i was like what this guy is saying is what i'm feeling and no one else has ever talked like it you know and um it's, it's just so powerful isn't it we put these things out there and you just never know what person who's going through something is going to hear it and think oh my god that's kind of that's made a massive difference to me and i was the same as you i didn't particularly go out and do anything after that i just saw that video and felt really seen but nothing like changed i was still ill for ages but it was oh, just right. knowing that knowing that it was out there gives yeah. you some sort of hope that you might eventually find some answers for something that at some time seems like there's not a lot of answers for, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I tried to come out to my parents that very night and they just wouldn't hear of it. They were throwing stereotypes at me. You know, you never played football. You know, you you did play with Barbies. You love payment. Like, how can you possibly be a boy? Like, are you sure you're not a lesbian? So I was really shot down. So the first, you know, part of my social transition was just spent on on the internet. And I mean, it it definitely had an effect on me and that, you know, I just felt so lost because I felt like I was just living my life through the internet and I could only be out and open there. You know, like with having a boy's name and an avatar and like profiles and things like that. But like that, that was really the extent to my transition and then trying to like, live as male whilst also coupled with an unsupportive you know home environment that was really really tough so I can definitely relate to that you know like nothing really coming of it and then I had to go back into the closet and then secretly look at all that stuff and follow those same youtubers and those same people but what I found was that like I say Benton was Canadian I couldn't find any British trans guys. I struggled for so long to find British trans male representation. There was only two YouTubers that I could find. And like, it was like I say, it was all on YouTube. There was, there was, I mean, even now, could you name a trans man in the public eye? Probably not. Probably just Elliot Page. You know, we aren't that visible. And that's why I do what I do. Because I don't want us just to be seen on YouTube. You know, we can exist in other spaces. And I don't want any other younger trans boys growing up thinking, oh, I can only exist on the internet. I can't possibly exist and then thrive in real life. Yeah, people need to know that, you know, that it is possible, isn't it? And that they're yeah. not on their own and they're not trapped. And yeah, that's so, 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 so important. Mm. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. Like the whole, when when there's like loads of hate leverage towards the trans community mm. and there's so much people talk about the process of coming out 
as if it's just like a decision that you make right. and then everything's just done. But no. when you kind of look into how hard that is to come out first to yourself and then to the people around, there's, there's almost like stages to coming out, I think. It doesn't happen once. It happens 20 times because you have to tell your family, your friends, your work, your utility bill providers, and then you have to come out every single day sometimes. You know, I have to make a conscious decision as a trans person when somebody asks me in a taxi at a barber's or another social setting what I do for a living. Do I tell them I'm an activist and a speaker? Oh, what do you do? Trans inclusion policies. Then I have to out myself. You know, it's it's a daily battle. And then obviously you have to deal with what happens if the experience isn't positive when you come out. And then that can affect who you come out to in future. But no, you're you're definitely right. Like it's it's such a big decision, but it's it can never be done all in one go. I think that people also well people who probably aren't in the lgbt community view it as like this big awakening and then like it's done after that you know nothing needs to be said and then if you do mention it's like okay we get it like you know don't make it your whole personality no i'm not i'm allowed to casually say that i'm trans or i'm gay or i'm bi or i'm pan or i'm queer like if if you have a problem with that then then don't project onto me um, but yeah, I've I've definitely got better about who I come out to and I'm definitely a lot more selective because, you know, I am a human being beyond my transness and I am an activist and I need to have my downtime and times where I'm not educating people. You know, I can't be an educator 24-7 and I can't be having difficult conversations i'm happy to especially in settings like these i mean the questions you are asking so far are lovely and respectful but the questions that i get typically in day-to-day -day life fixate on the coming out what was your name before what did you look like before what do you have down below how do you have sex i mean i don't get asked would you believe tom like questions that we're having today people just fixate on like that coming out experience, you know, the, the shock value. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's shocking to me that people can ask anyone such personal questions off the bat, let alone like a stranger or someone you've just met or um, mm. that's unbelievable. And it, it's one of those things. If you look at it from the other perspective, mm. like, you know, me as a cis man, if I went up to a cis woman and just started asking about her bits, like, exactly. you know, like that, that would be, um, that be horrendous that and and people would respond to that like rightly so <laughs> you know it was yeah. the the disgust that it would deserve and the fact that that's thrown around but i think that when you think about living as a transgender person i just don't think people think deeply enough about like that whole thing of being like forced to come out in a barbers and you don't know how that's going to be received and that puts you in a place of fear that yeah. it, you have to learn how to balance i mean you you mentioned before having to um you know really like protect yourself right and and take steps back and how how was the process of learning that i'm going to make an assumption here that you know because we touched about it before that sometimes we learn yeah. things the hard way tate yeah um so in terms of 
how did I learn how to selectively come out and protect? Yeah. And to look after yourself when you're doing this activist work, you know, and sometimes you've got to switch off and just say, do you know what? I just need to be like Tate and watch a bit of telly now, (laughs) you know, like I'm, I'm good. Like how did you learn to kind of get the balance between doing the work and doing the the brave stuff and then just kind of like looking after yourself and, and taking a step back from it when you need to? I think like you say, I learned the hard way. I answered too many questions I allowed myself to get into so many difficult conversations that I just got tired of it. So I would politely shut it down if it ever came up. I mean, I remember at one event, someone someone said, how did you come up with your name? And I said, oh, it's a shortened version of my old name. And they said, oh, what was your name before? And I said, um, I'm not comfortable sharing that. And I would advise you you not ask any trans person that because it can be quite triggering. And instead of this person being on board and supportive with it, they just got really snappy and defensive with me. And they went, but you mentioned that it was the shortened version of your old name. So I'm allowed to know what your old name is. And I was like, no, you aren't. Like, where does that (laughs) entitlement come from? And then I found myself having to come out and like, really sorry my door went and then I found myself having to come out in really weird situations like the dentist because when you go to the dentist they ask you if you're on any medication and obviously I don't know if testosterone is going to affect my teeth or whatnot so I tell them and but then I have to out myself because they think that if I take testosterone I'm like a gym steroid user or something (laughs) (laughs) and then I remember being at this dentist checkup which was supposed to be 15 minutes and turned into an hour because they wanted to basically just ask any question. And I thought, really wish I hadn't have said yes. I wish I had said, no, I've got to get back to work. I've got to make up this time later. I don't have the capacity to answer that. And that's the exact sentence which I've taken with me. Thank you for asking, but I don't have the capacity to ask that, answer that right now. You know, here's, yeah. you can give it a Google. Here's a video you can watch. I signpost rather than answer now because I have to protect my mental health and my well-being, you know, and I can't possibly represent the community. And if I'm answering questions all of the time, I'm going to slip up. And I can't possibly represent the trans person of colours experience or a trans asylum seeker, or like these little things that I have like no experience of that I get asked about. Like I can't possibly speak to those in confidence because I don't have that lived experience. And it has been very tough. I have been met with probably that same level of defensiveness, but I think they've just got to take it on the chin. And instead of me feeling like I have to answer, I now go take, it's up to them we're all adults here we can all google i always say in my speaking engagements when your dishwasher or an electrical appliance breaks down and you don't know how to fix it or you don't know how it works or what it does you google it you can do the same with trans people use those hours that you spend doom scrolling on instagram to put into learning about other people it's it's, honestly it's, it's not really not that hard And the reason why I say this to people and with a level of sympathy, because I get that we're not born with knowing this language, but I didn't know that language either. 
I had, I'm trans and I have to Google. I have to Google about non-binary and gender fluid and gender queer because I want to make sure that I'm getting the terms right and I want to make sure that I'm up to scratch with the latest terms. You know, just because I'm LGBTQ plus doesn't mean I know all the ins and outs of the terminology and the acronyms and so forth. So I have to educate myself. So I feel like any person outside of the community can can do that too. So it, it's putting those boundaries in place with a level of like empathy as well, but being very strict as well, because, you know, I have to be so, so careful with what I say first of all but second of all I've got to protect my voice so I'm like I'm a full-time speaker like otherwise I'm gonna talk <laughs> myself off and like my you know I'm still going through puberty like my voice is still dropping it's still finding it's you know octave or whatever like I can't you know just be nattering away at people all the time and I you know I don't want people just to think of me as a, as a trans man, I'm so much more than being trans. You know, I think the most interesting thing about me is my love of old Hollywood and, and old films. And I take any opportunity I can to talk about that rather than my transness, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I suppose the beauty of, you know, having a consultancy is if when people ask you questions, you say, I will answer them, but on the clock. So, exactly. yeah, yeah, I'll get, I'll get my diary out and you can pay <laughs> yeah. me to answer these questions. Job done, isn't it? Yeah. yeah why do you think I'm self-employed? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a really like tricky space. Boundaries always fascinate me. I always used to, uh, when I first started like learning about boundaries, I was used to thought it was about it was all about me, right? And what am I willing to do and what, and you know, what work I sign up for or what I take on or what I get involved with. And what I found was I made these boundaries that are so strict. I never really did anything. And then I heard somewhere, it was on somewhere like maths or somewhere like really unexpected. And mm. they said like boundaries aren't about you. Boundaries is how you um, teach other people how you want to be treated. And that, that really like sat well with me and I was like, right, okay, now I understand what boundaries are. It's, it's nothing to do with what I'm willing to do. It's willing to, it's letting people know how I want to be treated. And I think like it's, it's a nice, it sounds like, you know, that you've got a good balance with that, with yeah. that there, mate. Yeah. I, to, to um kind of double back a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, To the decision to then start once you, you know, you come out, it doesn't go very well at all. And then nope. you start making that decision to medically trans trans um, transition. Yes. And that's like, it's another one of these things that people talk as if you just go, all oh, right, I'm trans now, bump. And like, we just swap. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it's just, you know, it's, um, but that, I mean, that in itself is a, a big decision. How did you get that process rolling? You know? Oh my goodness. Well, it took a very, very long time. So when I came out to my parents originally, uh, just, you know, just as turning 17, I tried to get myself referred to a child gender identity clinic being under the age of 18. And the referral was not made to an adult clinic once I turned 17, which I wasn't aware of. I thought that I could only go to the adult clinic at the age of 18. So I got a rejection letter and I received this rejection letter at the same time as getting rejection from my family. And that really factored into me going back into the closet because I took that as rejection from the NHS because what happened was when I presented myself to the GP, they asked me all these questions and um, I thought like somehow I had failed a test. So I went back into the closet until I was 19, so a good two years. 
and I started working. So I left college. I started working as a legal secretary because I, I like I said, I come from a very, very poor background. I had no role models that worked in like corporate spaces. I didn't know that that would even be possible. My dad told me I would do well to get a manager job in Tesco. So the the benchmark was really, really low for me. So I wanted to exceed that and move out and earn, earn good money. You know, I was bartending at the time. So that was my priority, getting myself safe and in work. Um, and then once I started working, because I was like obviously experimenting with my dress, because it wasn't like I just went, right, I'm a woman again. Like gender dysphoria is a, is a massive deal. I knew that I had it. But I thought, oh, maybe I'm just like androgynous or something. Because even then, in 2016, non-binary wasn't commonly used as it is now. And it definitely wasn't like visible for me anyway. So it wasn't like I could even go, oh, okay, maybe I'm like somewhere in the middle or nothing at all. So I just thought, okay, maybe I'm just androgynous because I always had short hair as a woman. So I thought, oh, I can like pull off both. When I start working as a legal secretary, I can wear suits and cool like striped shirts and do my hair differently and slick it back and have it to the side and da 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 da. Tried it all, you know, went out, lived my life as a woman, partied, socialized, had partners, boyfriends, girlfriends, you know, lived my life to the fullest. And that all made me realize. I'm, I'm not a woman. I'm definitely not a woman. And when I came out to my dad, he said, not under my roof, mate. So I thought, right, I've got to get out underneath his roof because it was just us growing up. So, yeah, I took that really, really difficult decision two years later in the summer of 2018 to go, okay, I need to transition but I didn't get going until October because, you know, it's it's not like you, we can just sort it next week. We have waiting lists. We have admin we need to do. You know, there's a lot of admin that comes with being trans. There's a lot of calls and emails and scheduling appointments with gender identity clinics and then having to get a deed poll and sending that off to, I mean, think about it. Every single thing you've got your name on, your bank card, national insurance, everything. And then you have to pay like it was a lot, you know, and that's just to live as your full self before you're even buying the clothes that align with your identity and presenting and whatnot. But, yeah, I, I October, I got a new job to earn me more money to go and transition through the private healthcare route because the NHS waiting list was far too long. Um, and then, yeah, I got um, seen in January 2019 by a gender psychologist who diagnosed me formally with gender dysphoria. And I was so, so scared because I thought I was going to come up against this big checklist. And I remember being very upset with this lady and saying, you know, am I trans? You know, like I, I played with Barbies and all of this and I did all of these stereotypical things. And she was like, okay, like let's talk through like the other side. And what had happened was because I had such a tough childhood, for me, I think that I was an adult from the age of nine. So when she was saying to me, can you talk through like all of the things you did as a child? 
I would go, oh, well, I was a bit tomboyish, like, when I was, like, nine. And she was like, you you know that you were still a child at nine. Like, it just didn't occur to me, you know. So then I had to, like, go back and think through all of these things. And, but, but she was like, Tate, like, you've been living, like, as a man full time for a couple of months now. You've started this new job. You've given him a male name. You're getting a new passport. You've done your deed poll to change your name. Like... like this is it like let's let's talk this through and it was really really beneficial to me and then I got on hormones uh in April so this year 9th of April I'll be celebrating five years on testosterone so sort of the end to my second puberty hence why I look so young because I'm like having a 14 year old boy's puberty um but yeah it was a it was a very very long process and obviously Sorry for the long-winded answer. Not at all. That's what we're not, here for. It's it's not uh like you say, a short time frame to make that big, big decision. You know, it's and I and I wanna be more vocal about this actually, because you know, there will be trans guys that listen to this and are in the same situation as I was. And I think when trans people get older and get more seasoned in their speaking I've certainly done this we forget what it was like when we begin to transition and it all compartmentalizes in our head so the time frame gets mixed up and we think that it happened a lot quicker and you know when people say like oh and then one thing led to another like people go oh and then I transition and then I do this and you go hang on no there was like six months in between then you know it was a very very long road to me transitioning but yeah 9th of april 2019 best day of my life got on tester gel and been medically transitioning ever since and then uh 2020 august i had my top surgery so my procedure to masculinize my chest and uh i reckon that will be the only major surgery i have but then i will have a hysterectomy as well and that should do me just fine, how that aligns with my identity. And then, yeah, I get to live the rest of my life as a bloke. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, that's it. I, I always think these, like, these big decisions, they're so, um, they're so important and they're so scary, right? Mm. And even if you know it's the right decision, and I, I, I don't want to keep um, comparing your uh transition experience to my mental health experience right oh, but there, there's oh, so many like sort of uh coloration uh, can't get the word out there's so many things that are similar that are made, that are coming up for me and you yeah. know when I was really really ill and I remember I didn't want to say that I was ill right all this thing about men don't talk and all the rest of it I didn't want to say it even though I knew it because then I was going to have to act on it and that acting on it was really scary and I was worried that I was going to get a label. I was going to get worried that I was going to have to go to hospital. I was going to worry that all these things were happening. And even though I knew that what I was going through was really tough and I needed to get out of it and by vocalizing it was going to get me out of it. The unknown on the other side was so scary. That was enough to stop me doing it. And I was really thinking about there because you, you know, you know that you need to go through this process to be able to live the life that you need to be able to live. Yeah. But at the same time, like the actual process of doing that is big and scary and hard. So it's kind of like there's only one way for you to walk. And that's a really hard, scary way. And mm. 
that sometimes we can get stuck along that path, can't we? Where we can't really go back and we're too scared to go forward. And that being trapped in the middle is like a really, the, the tension just builds up, isn't it? And that's a really hard place to be in. I think for anyone, whether it's a, whether it's transitioning, whether it's like, I don't know, you're trapped in a relationship you hate or a job yeah. you hate, but you've got a mortgage yeah. to pay. It doesn't matter, does it? Whatever yeah. you're trapped in, um, being trapped is, a, is, is one of the worst places, I think. It's where people get to that point where they can only see one way out. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, it's really, um, yeah, really tough. Were you, you mentioned there being in work um, and using like a masculine name and, and stuff yes. like that. Yes. It is, I'm assuming you do a lot of sort of corporate stuff and a lot of work in workplaces now. Is yeah, that from yeah. your experience of coming out at work? It is, it is. Um, when I started speaking, I knew I was going to be a lived experience speaker rather than like a terminology trainer or a like basics educator, you know what I mean? I didn't want to just do training. I wanted to first and foremost, give visibility to trans men. And secondly, to speak about my lived experience as a trans person, because I mean, I'm very, very open about the transition, the testosterone, what that's done, the admin that got me to medically transitioning and that route. But I think, personally is far more interesting and beneficial for people to talk about the lived experience because there's enough content online for people to go and research about how a trans person goes about transitioning but there isn't enough information about what happens after what happens once the transition completes and what happens for the rest of your life and day to day. I think that's much more interesting. But, you know, I had really, really um, odd experiences coming out, you know, odd questions, like people coming up to my desk asking me, like, what I was going to do with my never regions and, you know, just really, really digging into my personal life, you know, so who are you going to sleep with now? And it was just awful. And then I had line managers and HR teams who were, like just almost they did not know what to do with me and all of these workplaces had something in common which is that they didn't have a policy in place or they didn't start the conversation before me as the first out trans person came out and luckily you know I found that once I was very lucky that I got into law I would say because and it's nothing to do with the Equality Act 2010, although that probably will pay a part. But they were ahead of the curve in terms of trans inclusion policies. They had them and then other organisations followed suit, I think, because like one competitor, but two, oh, it's a law firm. So we've got to like take this seriously. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So that's why I started speaking and then doing policy work, because I don't want trans people to go through the exact same thing that I did in the workplace and I was very very fortunate that the workplaces I this was only one luckily the the workplaces that followed afterwards were, were mostly positive it was actually the people and their conversations that wasn't and what I found was that again that correlation between education and starting that conversation lunch and learns people went to them for visibility days for mental health for well-being but there wasn't any for, for transgender and especially trans men i kept seeing people talking about transgender and only inviting trans women in 
And I was like, no, this is becoming a real, real problem now. Because what happens is, is that people get very narrow-minded with what transgender is. And they think that it's just a bloke playing dress up. And I'm still having to fight that in daily conversations now. And for the first time in my transition, I'm actually having to explain what a trans man is. I never had this five years ago. Oh, okay, you was a girl, now you're a bloke. We get it. Yeah, Tate Smith, I'm trans man. What? So you you want to be a girl? No, trans man. So female to male, transgender. Yeah, mate, I don't get it. Like people just, just don't understand it now because there's no visibility. So I'm happy to be that visibility because I think I've been given a gift to be able to speak in public, but also to be able to talk down on people's levels and educate them. Because I'm a very glass half full activist. I'm very, very positive. And I've had quite an emotional talk today. But for the most part, I am very, very positive. And I don't like to talk about the hardships. Although I do like to talk about the realities. I don't like being trans is, is not hard for me. It's actually the easiest decision I've had to make because it was the decision to live as my full and authentic self. What is hard is having these difficult conversations and having to talk to adults like they're two-year-olds because they won't do the research themselves. Um, but yeah, I've I've been doing a lot of work in corporates over the last three years, which I'm so, so happy about. And they're so supportive of me. And I'm so grateful to each and every one of them for giving me those platforms because I've seen it have an effect on the community because I get a lot of trans guys, well, and trans people in general, who are now entering into corporate spaces or they drop me a message on LinkedIn and they say, you know, I applied for this job or I've seen you working in law and you've inspired me. Like just the very fact that I'm a trans person working in a corporate space is, is inspirational in itself to the community because I think we're taught that, you know, because we're trans, life is over. Who's going to accept us? A corporate, you know, bog standard workplace isn't going to, to support you. And actually, it's the complete opposite. They'll welcome you with open arms. You know, you will have some difficult conversations and you might have to say, no, I don't want to be the only out person to educate everybody, you know, do the policy work, get that framework in place. But for the majority of it, I think it's a lot more positive now. And I think that's definitely because of what I've been helping to do, but other activists as well, because I've got to give credit to the other trans activists who, who are working in corporate spaces because i'm not you know the only out trans person that's working in the city of london <laughs> yeah sure it's like it's just nice to kind of focus on a positive for a change right yes talking about gender because like yeah. there is so much like negative narrative and it is easy to fall in the trap especially as someone on the outside looking in um, yeah you know of like everything being awful and and of course there is that aspect to it but it's also yeah like you say like really positive and, and good things and yeah um, that's lovely to hear you know and and having the ability to change things from the inside well i my own humble opinion is that as a society one of the things that where we make the most mistakes is that we make 
you know, policy and legislation about demographics of people. We don't give them a say. So no. it, it's, it's all like, you know, middle-aged, rich, cis, white men make the yeah. decisions for everybody. And then we wonder yeah. why nothing works. Like, if you want, like, if you want to know what trans people need, ask trans people, man. Like, it's, that's, that's simple to me. But, um, yeah. so it's lovely that you can kind of get, get in there and, and, and help those things. I wanted to, um, I wanted to ask Tate, um, and it's something that I've heard you talk a, a little bit about before. Mm. And as someone who's as presented as a, as both a female and a male, I'm yes. really interested to talk about male mental health and the kind of like, because, you know, there is a, a men's mental health crisis at the moment. There's a lot yes. going on. And I was just wondering just to kind of get your view on that, really, with your own experience of, um, you know, yeah, like some of the reasons maybe why men struggle so much and why men are in crisis and you know how do you start to how do you see all all that sort of bird's eye view i suppose it's a very big question it's quite a vague yeah definitely and it's a great question what i noticed as a woman is that other women were more open to me discussing my mental health because as women you're encouraged to have conversations there's this um Little, I think it's a metaphor or something that someone taught me where women talk face to face. They have chats, they have brunches, they have lunches, they go to the bathroom together, they have catch ups. Men stand shoulder to shoulder, they play darts, they fish, they don't make eye contact, they talk when they're driving. And I, I, I really, really saw the effect of that as I transitioned. I noticed that when I would bring up my mental health, people would do a a breath in or a gasp, like, ooh. Because as much as you said earlier, men, men don't talk or maybe they don't have the tools to be able to do that, I personally don't think that people are actually open it, opening up those conversations because as soon as I've brought up my mental health as a man, I've been um, faced with that reaction that oh, people have changed the subject instantly. Whereas when I was presenting female, it would be, oh, you okay, Han? Let's talk about it. Now people just don't know what to do. So as an activist, it makes me want to talk about it more. But still, in everyday conversation, people are like, you know, don't, don't, don't want to talk about this, mate. And also, people have said, you know, man up, take it on the chin to me, which is so, so disrespectful. And I mean, it angered me when I was presenting female anyway, because I don't think we should just talk to people with that level of disrespect but, you know, the fact that you've said that to me as someone who is transitioning is just even more disrespectful as I'm exploring what it means to be a man, as I'm exploring my own masculinity. Um, and I, I think it's a real problem that others shut those conversations down and are not looking out for, for the men in their lives. Because like you say, there is a real crisis going on. I've seen it from even before I started transitioning and, and now I'm living it, you know, we are having these conversations. Uh, we see a lot of campaigns. We need to talk more. We need to talk more. Men are talking. You're just not listening. And I keep drumming it into people. And well, 
ironically, no one is listening to me, but I'm going to keep talking about it because I've, I have that lived experience of it where people took me seriously and my mental health struggles as a woman, but now as a man, I get shut down. But another interesting thing I've noticed is there's a lot of stuff out in the world. There's a lot of books and it's not all positive about how to be a woman. And unfortunately, there are some horrible people who try and tell women what they should be and what they should look like. But with men, there's none of that. You're left to your own, you know, accord. You've got to sort of make your own way in life. You've got to emulate the father figure in your life. You, you don't know what you're doing. And I've really found that whilst I've been transitioning. I don't think there's enough support there for boys growing up, sort of left alone. Yeah, yeah. And I think especially in puberty, especially in school age, and then what that does is that then shapes them up to be adults who, who probably don't want to open up or don't want to talk about their own masculinity or defy those norms and those stereotypes you know as i've been transitioning i've had toxic ideals pushed on me people assume that i go to the gym because i take testosterone and i want to look like arnie no i don't that's not the body ideal that i want i'm happy looking like i am thank you very much and then people have gone do you want to play darts do you want to join our football team do you want to come out with us down the pub why why do i need to do all of this stuff now that the outside of me me has changed when have i ever told you that i'm into sport when have i ever mentioned that i drink you know what i mean there's all of these things these expectations that that come with a man which i i was aware of because obviously i observed it from the other side but now that i'm living it i realize that actually there's there's a lot of pressure and i would say just as much pressure that comes with being a woman yeah, that's fascinating to me. I've not really thought of it from that perspective, right? Because we, in the mental health conversation, there's so much focus on like toxic masculinity, right? And like yeah. you say, that men are always told what they shouldn't be, but not what they can be, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I've never really thought of it like that, you know? So yeah, you know, you, you shouldn't, as a man, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't behave in this way. And it's like, all right, okay, well, like, how should I behave? Right. Like there's no guide. There's no, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. That's so, so interesting. That's given me a lot to, a lot to chew on there. Too. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so yeah. glad. This is why I, I speak because, and I'm actually planning on writing a book about this because I think I have that really unique perspective of masculinity and I want to call it how to be a man because I've had to learn <laughs> by myself how to be a man effectively but i think that cis men could could learn a lot from me actually because i've i've lived as both yeah i'd agree you know, i've got so much insight to, to give and i want and i want to do that i want to challenge i want to get cis men thinking so that's yeah that's really made me happy to hear that you know i've made you think about that yeah so very much so things, yeah yeah, very much so. It, it sounds like that's the plan for uh, for this year, is it, mate? To kind of take us home, it'd be a lot of um, hunched yeah. over the laptop for many a late night. Yeah, kind of thing. yeah. Well, I have been staying up very late and um, writing 
when I can, when the inspiration comes. But yeah, I've been speaking for three years now. I've just launched my consultancy. You know, I don't want to be limiting myself to just corporates forever. And I feel like I just need to share all of these insights, especially now I'm coming up to this big, well, two big milestones. I'm turning 25 in March, then five years on testosterone in April. So I want to group together everything that I've learned so far and then hopefully that opens up more opportunities to do follow-up books or articles about what I'm learning, you know, post the second puberty and transition and just getting on and, and living as Tate, the man, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. A, a guest once I had um it was uh, I had Joanna Basford on who did the okay. adult coloring books. Yes. And um something she said to me that always stays with is like um she said share from the scar not from the wound, you know? And there's it's like that's always stuck with me and this idea that you can go through something and then get to a place where you've kind of made your peace with that thing that you've been through and you feel really good and in a place to help others. And then as you carry on on your, whatever's next between 25 and 30, however, however it is, but then you're using everything you've been through over the last few years to help others. There's something really nice, isn't there, of getting to that place where you feel that you can, um, you can like support and, and yeah, and help others along the, the navigate the path that you just have, so to speak. Yeah. So yeah, it's lovely, mate. I wish you all the best of it. I can't, can't oh, wait to see you. where you, where you oh, go. And um, yeah, I'll be I'll be expecting a copy of that of oh, that book definitely. when you start sending them out, mate. I'll uh... you'll be first on the priority. <laughs> Fantastic. Ah, <laughs> oh, Tate, it's been such a pleasure today. I've loved hanging out with you this morning. Thank you oh, so you much did. for your time. It's been lovely. No, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, Big up to that proper mental podcast. <laughs> the proper mental podcast. <laughs> <laughs>